Good evening. Well, it's good to be back. I, I wish we had more time to just visit and hug and say hello and catch up, but it's always a joy uh, to come back home to Buford. It's always amazing how some people never change. They look exactly the same, and I'm not going to say who, Bradley. Um, <laughs> Bradley's hair, I don't even know if it, if it moves. Is it real, Bradley? I, don't, I think it might not be real. Y'all check on that. And then there's these kids over here. I don't recognize any of them. They've all grown up. And then there's Kyle, who evidently y'all have stopped feeding since I left. Somebody make Kyle a sandwich so that the next time I come, he's not just faint, laying down faint. But thank you for coming tonight. Uh, my family is here. We're excited to be here. We've looked forward to this for many months. So I hope you are excited for our study tonight, I love this series, the, the name of Jesus, a most excellent name, so many names of Christ as you look into the Bible. And when I was selecting the name of Jesus that I would focus on tonight, I chose one that stuck out to me for various reasons. And part of the reason is because I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And there was, a, there was a word, and, and the word was word. And if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, the word word could mean almost anything. For example, if, if you want to say hello to somebody, you can say word. This word, and that would work. They would know exactly what you meant. If you got a new job, and you wanted to know whether or not somebody was happy for you, you said, hey, I got a new job, if they said word. That meant they're happy for you. If you got fired and you wanted to know if they supported you and they said, word, you got fired, same thing, they support you. The word word could mean almost anything in the culture that I grew up in. And if you add up to it, word up, we're in a whole nother area. So, you know, I put up this picture. That's not me, by the way. But, but that's the word word. Well, had, had a lot of different meanings. And, and this guy used to say a word uh, to your mother. I don't know what he, he didn't know my mother, but he wanted to say a word to your mother. And, and so it was this word that just was everywhere. It was this word that had so many meanings, and it just stuck out to me as I looked at the lesson titles. And I've studied the passage that we're going to talk about. I, I had better reasons than, than this guy. But it is a highly interesting name of Jesus. And it's a fascinating study, and I invite you to, to join in with me on just a fraction of this study tonight. When the Holy Spirit inspired Apostle, the Apostle John to write his account of the story of Jesus, he, he began that gospel in a unique and unusual way, especially as his gospel compared to the other accounts of the gospel message. And our brother Curtis Cates sort of breaks it down in this way. The Gospel of Matthew was written to Jews to put forth Jesus as the Messiah. You know, the Jews had been given the law of Moses. They were looking for the promised Messiah. And so Matthew starts with a genealogy that goes all the way back to Abraham because that's where the Jewish audience would need to start if they're going to believe in Jesus. Mark's Gospel, written by a, a Jew slash Greek to the Romans, 
which was a group who was interested in action and, and service, well, he presented Jesus in, in many ways as a lowly and exalted servant for his audience. Luke was written by a Gentile to Gentiles to present Jesus as a brother to everyone. And so Luke, in his genealogy of Jesus, traces him not just back to Abraham, but all the way back to who? All the way back to Adam. He's everyone's brother, according to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. And then you have John, written by a Jewish Christian to, to give specifically, he, get, he told us what his purpose was, to give sufficient evidence to convince anyone and everyone to do what? To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote his gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So who is the Messiah of Matthew? Who is the lowly and exalted servant of Mark? Who is the Son of Man in Luke? He is the Son of God himself. As John MacArthur would say, and I don't agree with a lot of the things that John MacArthur teaches, but, but I like the way he put this. He said that John's gospel is not primarily earthly, it is heavenly. And this is what he means by that. John's gospel is very different, isn't it? It does not mention a lot of the earthly parts of Jesus' life in some ways. It doesn't mention his birth. No mention of his early life, no mention of his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration, his travels, the Garden of Gethsemane, his ascension, or his parables, which were his earthly stories. Most of John's gospel, 90% of it or so, is unique to him, not appearing in either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so John's purpose, and therefore the content of his gospel, was very different for a very good reason. Now let me tell you at the outset, the, the lesson tonight is, is a black hole of study. And I mean that in a good way. You can, you can study this, this one word, this one name of Jesus as much as you want to and, and not come up short. And so everything I'm going to share with you tonight, it's not exhaustive. I, I'm very indebted to other smarter, more scholarly people than myself for almost everything that I'm presenting tonight. So it was a bit of a daunting assignment. I didn't realize it at the time, but this, this is a daunting assignment in the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. So our text is John 1, verse 1 and verse 14, where John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and there's our, our name, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So our task tonight in the series, in the context of Jesus having a more excellent name, is to examine Jesus as the Word in John chapter 1, verse 1 and following, to take a look at the word that John chooses, the name that John chooses and uses here, translated from the Greek word logos, and look at this from a few different perspectives. So this is the Greek word that's, that's used by John uh, that's translated word in our English Bibles, logos. And so let's look at this from a few different perspectives tonight. Let's begin by looking at this word culturally. Because... The Bible was written, as, as, as you know, in a culture, in, a, in an existing culture of its day, and that culture happened to be the Greek culture. And so it was written in the Greek language. And so the Greek word, translated word, um, which is logos, and the concept behind it that it had come to represent in this culture is, is very fascinating and important. 
as we explore this particular name. It had a very rich history. Much like the, the same word in the 80s and 90s, but, but for much better reasons, it was loaded with meaning. So the basic meaning of this word in this culture was to put words side by side, to speak, to express an opinion. That's from Robertson's word pictures. It, it indicates and emphasizes reason as well as speech with a focus on things that are, that are rational as opposed to mythological. We're talking about real things. We're talking about formulating thoughts and, and expressing those thoughts. That's the basic meaning of logos in the Greek culture. One of the earliest Greek philosophers, Heraclitus of Ephesus, back in 540 to 480 BC, he thought, and this is all part of the background here, and John knew this, he thought that there was an independent universal logos that regulated and arranged the cosmos. Okay, so this word, it meant more uh, to Heraclitus than just speech and, and reasoning. It meant, he thought there was an actual logos, an actual entity, that all things in the world happened according to this logos, and that it was a divine principle that transcended the world of mortals. Well, this is Heraclitus, not a Christian, not even a believer in God, but, but this idea of the Logos came to represent much more to him than simple words. It was an idea that transcended mortality. Aristotle came along in 384 to 322, uh, and, and in terms of its use in language or rhetoric, Aristotle used the word Logos to mean argument from reason. So again, it's opposed to his other two forms of arguing. Aristotle had, had uh, logos, which was arguing from reason, and then he had pathos, which was persuasion by means of emotional appeal, and then he had ethos, which was persuasion through convincing of somebody's moral character. So for Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, logos is something more refined than the capacity to make private feelings public. It was, it was something that made it possible for somebody to perceive uh, through reasoned discourse, the difference between good and bad. What was advantageous and what was harmful. What was just and what was unjust. So Aristotle brought even more richness to the word and the idea of the Logos. The Stoics, founded by Zeno of Citium and beginning in 300 B.C., saw it as, here's, here's a quote, the active reason pervading and animating the universe. That's what they thought of as the Logos, the active reason pervading and animating the universe. They assumed that this Logos governed the thought and the structure of the world because the world was so ideal and it was so orderly that something had to be behind that. So the Stoics said that the Logos is behind all of this. And the Stoics' philosophy was the most important and influential development in Greek philosophy at the time, and it continues to be pretty influential among modern thinkers. And so it was this power, this force, this law of reality, according to these philosophers. As we move further in the Greek culture, Philo of Alexandria, a Hellenized Jew or a Greek Jew, used the term to refer to an intermediary divine being who could bridge the, the gap between God and the material World And the Logos was the highest of these intermediary beings, called by Philo, and this is interesting, the firstborn of God. 
that he bonded everything together. Remember, none of these are believers. But this word is, is developing, snowballing into this incredibly rich word with very loaded meanings to everybody in this culture. Now, as one writer put it, the, the Greek metaphysical concept of the logos is, is not the concept of a personal God. It's not that. It's, it's not the Hebrew Jewish idea of a personal God. Everything was, was predetermined according to the Greeks. But, but the Logos, the, their idea of God, their idea of providence or whatever, was, was an optimistic philosophy. And it sort of oriented their lives. And so what you have here is they had this familiarity of, of something or some being that was behind everything, but they were not there in terms of their understanding of, of the real, true Jehovah God. So they were familiar with a lot of the concepts that would describe God, but their ideas of Him were, were incomplete. But if you were to say this word around a Greek, their ears would perk up and they would immediately think of things like God. Does that make sense? So this idea is something that had just evolved over, over the centuries, taken on new and, and deeper and richer and kind of, you know subtle meanings, depending on which philosopher you happen to listen to. So that's kind of the cultural context of this word, this Greek word. Now, when you look at the biblical and historical context of it, what did it mean to the Jews? What did it mean in, in the Old Testament scriptures historically? How was this word used? Well, a lot of the meanings are very similar. The standard usage was, was very similar to the, the Greek culture, speech, utterance, a word or the act of speaking. So that's kind of its, its standard usage in the Bible and in the Jewish and Hebrew uh, historical record. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this word hundreds of times. It's translated word in Numbers 11.23 and Joshua 23. It's translated truth in Deuteronomy 13.14. It's even translated thing in Deuteronomy 32. 47. So it depends on what translation you're using. It's, it comes up hundreds of times, and it's translated in a lot of different ways. Very broad word in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in its standard usage. But it's also got a, uh, a special use. It's also got a special use in the Old Testament, and that is to specify the word of, of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, for example. And when it's used that way, it's not talking about just the words that come out of God's mouth. It's talking about the dynamic, active communication of God's purpose and His plan for His people. So when the, when the Jews hear logos, it's all about the context. It might, it might mean nothing. It might just mean a word. It might just mean an idea. It might just mean a thing. But if you say the word of God, all of a sudden you have the Jews' attention. Because now you're not just talking about the words that God has, has told somebody to write down. You're talking about God's active and dynamic communication to his people. What is he doing uh, among us? That was the logos to the Hebrews. If you were to ask one writer, he put it this way. When you look at the context of this word in the Old Testament scriptures, it is plain that it has connotations much further than the simple definitions of word, reason, or even purpose. The way that it's used in Scripture denotes God's activities and actions. It represents His revelation, His communication, His purpose. So, 
again, when you, when you bring up the word logos and you write it in John chapter 1, verse 1, and you write it in John chapter 1, verse 14, and you're writing in a Greek culture to people who would have been Greeks and Jews, you've gotten everyone's attention. You're talking about something that everyone thinks they know about. Everyone has ideas about. And everyone's got some kind of opinion or theory about what you're talking about when you write the word logos. And so it's almost like kind of this cliffhanger, you know, that John starts by writing about the word, the logos. Let's talk about him for several verses and, and talk about his nature and all of these different things. But we're going to kind of leave it nebulous and we're going to kind of let this idea kind of sit in your mind for a few minutes before I tell you who we're talking about. So it's an incredibly rich and inviting way to begin the story of Jesus, if your name is John. And so this is a fascinating word for everybody who's listening. We don't think anything about it. We read, in the beginning was the word, and we think, well, okay, what are you talking about? But they would not have thought that. Th this was brilliant writing, and we give the Holy Spirit all the credit for that. So we've got a cultural history and a rich biblical and historical background for this one word, this one concept. And when we get to the New Testament, when we get to John chapter 1, the word takes on an even richer meaning. It continues to have its, its standard meaning in the New Testament. For example, 1 Corinthians 1.5, uh, Paul says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Speech is logos. So it still has its standard meaning. Acts 10, 29, I ask then, for what reason have you sent for me? Peter said that to Cornelius. For what reason is logos? Standard meaning, it's a very generic word in a lot of places in the New Testament. It also retains its special meaning in the New Testament. Mark 7, 13, Acts 4, 31, talk about the word of God, the logos of God. So it's special there. There's standard, there's special, just like there was in the Old Testament, but... John is about to give it a unique meaning. And, and this is where the, the, the entire idea of this word comes to life, literally. So I'll, I'll kind of borrow some structure from a few other writers that I studied during this lesson because I like the way they broke this down. So I'm going to use some of their material here because I think it's just very helpful. When John talks about the word... Here are some things that he's telling us about the word, whoever he or it may be, okay? He's talking about, number one, his pre-existence or his eternality. That's why John says, in the beginning was the word. In other words, the word existed before the beginning. In the beginning, the word already was. Genesis 1-1 comes to mind, right? In the beginning, God created everything else, but didn't create the Word. Because in the beginning, the Word already was. So we're talking about whoever this is, this is an eternal, pre-existent being. And remember the other Gospels. The Gospel of Mark begins with the baptism of Jesus, and the Gospels of Matthew and Luke begin with the birth of Jesus. John says, no, we're going to go back a whole lot further than that. I need you to understand that we're not talking about someone who had a beginning. When we talk about the Word, we are talking about an eternal purpose of God. Genesis begins with the creation. John's Gospel goes back even further. 
the Word was before all else. In the beginning, the Word was already there. The Word was is, is kind of like when Jesus says, I am. It's kind of like Moses at the burning bush. What's your name? What can I tell the, the people that your name is? My name is I am. I, I don't have a beginning. I, I don't, you can't trace me back to a certain point. I just am. There can be no speculation about how the word came to be, as one commentator said, for the word simply was. The word has no origin. Now just... Don't think about that too much or you'll, you'll have some kind of aneurysm while we're in the auditorium. But the Word just was in the beginning. In our beginning, He already was. He was not created. He was the Creator. He existed before time. He created time and then He entered time, as one writer said. And the emphasis here is, is kind of cosmological and reflects the bigness of God reflects the bigness and the, the stage that we're on back in Genesis chapter 1. These are big ideas that we're talking about. Whoever the Word is, He's pre-existent. He's eternal, which makes Him God. Okay? So here's the second thing that, that this uh, Logos is. He's co-existent. And that emphasizes His personality. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So the Word, as you see here, is separate and distinct from God because He's with God. They're not the same exact thing. They're not the same exact person. He's with God in close relationship with God. And the language here implies a, that there's, there's a free mingling. There's a community. There's an equality here. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, this same word is used when the people around Jesus are talking about Jesus. Are, is this not the carpenter's son? Are not his sisters here with us? Same word. They're with us. We know them. They're, we're familiar. They're in our community. We're, we see each other all the time. We have intimate relationships. We, we, we know them. Well, that's the word used. The word was with God in that same way. The Logos and God do not just exist side by side, but they're in constant fellowship with one another. There's a differentiation between the two. And this refutes any idea that suggests that, that, that God and the Logos are identical. They're the same thing. They're the same person. No, they're not. Not according to John. John says he's, he was pre-existent, he's eternal, but he's also co-existent. He has a personality that's different because he's with God. So this is an incredibly important concept that John is illustrating in very short verse. In the beginning was the Word, pre-existent, eternal, and the Word was with God, co-existent. He had a personality of His own. You also see that He's self-existent, and this describes the nature of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word, here we go, was God. The Word was God. So what these first two phrases have sort of implied, the third phrase confirms. Whoever the Logos is, whenever and wherever he came from, which is something that the, the writers of Scriptures don't even try to explain. They just assume it. He's 100% God. Whoever the Logos is, he's, he's been around since God's been around. He's coexisted with him, and he happens to be God as well. In the Greek word, uh, in the Greek, 
language, the word translated God, theos, is used without the article here. Meaning that the the logos mentioned here was, was possessed with the very essence of deity. Fully God, without identifying himself as God the Father. The New English Bible translates this, what God was, the Word was. And I like that. That gets across the message. What God was, the Word was. Because the Word was God. So we see in this very short phrase, this very first verse of John's Gospel, we're establishing the Logos as pre-existent, eternal, co-existent with the personality, and self-existent. By His nature, His very nature, He is God. We also establish in verse 14 his earthly or or human existence. The word did what? This word who, who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, did what? Hold on a second. Became flesh and dwelt among us? That's something you're not going to find in Greek philosophy. We're turning a corner here into new territory for whoever is reading John's gospel. John just, you know, the first verse is, is, is amazing. and It'll capture your attention and you'll think, wow, but the 14th verse, you've got to do something with that, don't you? You're telling me that God, the creator of everything, did what? Became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, up to this point in John's Gospel, the the Logos or the Word is not clearly identified, is it? You won't find the name of Jesus anywhere in those first 14 verses. But there can be no mistake when you get to verse 14 that John is referring to Jesus of Nazareth. There could be no mistake. Who being nothing less than God, nothing less than God, took on another state of being. On purpose, at a specific point in time, he became human nature. John would later write this in 1 John 1, 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, you know the verse, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word, logos of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. We saw him. God himself. In the flesh. We touched him with our own hands. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable concept, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, isn't it? It's fascinating. George Beasley Murray put it this way, The Logos, in becoming flesh, participated in man's creaturely weakness, which is what the word flesh means in the Bible. He participated in that voluntarily. The words translated dwelt among us means to pitch one's tent It conveys the idea of moving into the neighborhood and taking up residence. I'm going to be with you. I'm here. I'm going to be in your presence. I'm I'm going to live with you. We're, We're going to experience the same things which Jesus did physically. 
literally for some 33 years. That's the Logos. Boy, that's, that's quite the name to give to Jesus, isn't it? That's, that's quite the loaded term in the Greek or Jewish culture to give to Jesus. If you said this about anybody in this culture, you would be saying a lot, but they're saying about someone that everyone witnessed, that everyone saw and experienced. So here are some, some conclusions about the Word, the Logos, Jesus. He is the fullest revelation of God, the exact representation of the nature of God. Just think about that. I know that we didn't physically see Him or, or meet Him, but, but a lot of people did. A lot of people did. And what they met and what they saw when they saw Jesus was the fullest revelation. And God used a lot of things and a lot of ways to reveal himself to man. That Jesus was the fullest revelation of the very nature of God. Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's amazing. You're not missing anything is what that verse is saying. He's all God. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's the word. That's the name that the Holy Scriptures have given to Jesus Christ. An eternal, divine being who is the very nature of God and the ultimate expression, according to David Life, in human form of God's will for humanity. Why did John begin his gospel? which had as its purpose to, to cause belief in Jesus. Why did he begin it with this concise and profound series of statements about Jesus as the Word? Again, I want to quote John MacArthur here. He said, only when you understand Christ to be who he is, not just a good teacher, not just a moral man, not just a prophet. Only when you understand him to be who he really is, his person first, and then his work, is there any possibility that you could be saved. You must believe. You must believe that Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus was not just a God. Not just a, an offspring of God. No, no, no. He was God. Dwelling in human form. So to tell us that this word became flesh. Listen to this. This is, this is amazing. To tell this audience the word became flesh is to personify and complete the Greek philosophy about that which gave life and meaning to the universe. I've heard you talking for hundreds of years, Greek philosophers, about where the universe comes from, who made it, who sustains it, who upholds it. It's Jesus. He was right here. 
Ancient Greek philosophy was concerned with answering the ultimate questions of reality. They were seeking to find ultimate truth. They wanted to find the ultimate reality that lies behind all other things. And over time, as they pondered those questions, they came up with this word to describe it. Well, it must be something. Let's just call it the logos. It gives life, gives meaning to the universe, but it's, you know, there's nothing personal about it disconnected from us. It's, it's not a real person. It doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with us. Actually, it does. Actually, the, the truth of the matter is this Logos became a human being and manifested the glory of God Himself. He's the personal God revealed to us in the Old Testament. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. This Logos which gives meaning and purpose to all things, is the complete revelation, the manifestation of every cultural, historical, and biblical idea of this word. The complete revelation of God. The God. Whether you knew Him or didn't know Him. Whether you believe in Him or don't believe in Him. This is brilliant writing. And it's brilliant reason. And if you want to get your audience's attention... The Holy Spirit knew exactly how to do that. And I don't know, I know that I have failed to convey the depth of this word. The depth of, of this particular name of our Lord. I know I have failed. I can't tell you how many times as I studied this, I just had to stop. I just had to stop and, and soak in what I had just learned and soak in what does this mean? I read an entire book about Greek philosophy just so I could have anything to say about this that sounded intelligent tonight. And it probably hasn't even worked. This, there is so much here that, that as a, a 21st century Christian who's reading the Gospel of John, you're never going to see it. And that's why Bible study is so rich and so important. You really can't even have a, a full idea of the, the, the greatness and the, the bigness of God unless you understand the, the, what is the idea of a God. You know, we, we look at secular philosophy sometimes and we say, well, we don't have any need for that. And to some extent, I agree, but, but the, the philosophy is thinking. It's pondering what's behind all this. Sometimes we don't think enough, do we? think about God enough. We don't think about how, how long he's been and how great he is and, and what a big deal it was if that's the understatement of the millennium when he became flesh and dwelt among us. Now what does all this mean practically for us as Christians today? You can find your own meaning in it. I encourage you to do that but here are a few suggestions. First thing I would suggest that this name of Christ does for us is it encourages us to find common ground. Find common ground with the people you're trying to reach with the gospel. I'm not sure that anybody's exactly sure why John chose to use this particular word in his gospel. He doesn't really tell us, but I'm sure you can understand after just 30 minutes of listening to me, he had some reasons. He made a good choice. One commentator says, whatever your view of the background of the term logos might be, John was making a claim that both Jews and Greeks would equally understand. He chose a term that was in common use 
How do you share the message of Jesus with the people around you? Do you use words that they won't understand? The vocabulary of, of, of church? Or can you think beyond that and think, what is something that everybody around me is thinking about? Something that everybody in the world is trying to get to the bottom of. Why couldn't I use that? That's what John did, the Holy Spirit, through John. Find some common ground. Remember Paul in Acts 17 when he's preaching on Mars Hill about Jesus? You know how much scripture he quotes? Zero. Because they didn't believe in the scripture. He had to find common ground with a bunch of people who lived in a city where there were three times as many idols as there were people. So he did. Quoted some of their modern-day poets. Mentioned all of the, the idols that he had seen around in the city. Found common ground. Number two, we've got to reject all counterfeit versions of Jesus. Now in the first century, and I don't mean to get into too much history here, it's likely to lose a lot of people, but for the first century audience, this means that, that the Gnostic heresies that came up in the first century regarding Jesus had to be rejected. The Gnostics would claim, among other things, that Jesus never actually became flesh. He seemed to be flesh, but he never really was, because not, you know, if you become flesh, you can't really be God. That's not true. That's a heresy. You have to reject that if you're going to believe in Jesus, because the Bible clearly says he did become flesh, and he was clearly God. You have to reject that heresy. In our day... And I'm not here to name call, I'm just here to, to state the facts. In our day, it's groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons who believe in Jesus, but they believe he was created. They believe he's a God and not the God. And you might think, well, what difference does it make? All the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. You have to reject all inauthentic, untrue, or half-true, or 90% true stories about Jesus when you realize that he is the word. You can't believe what John says and believe what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. You just can't believe both of those things. And I choose to believe God. You've got to reject all counterfeit versions of Jesus. You've got to accept a, a Trinitarian view of God. How many of you have, have blacked out trying to think about the Trinity like I have? Just just passed out, tried to think about this idea. God has three distinct persons, all of whom are separate but equally God. Just don't think about that too much, but it's true. One of the most difficult concepts to understand and explain, but crucial to an understanding of God in Scripture. I've seen it uh, explained in these ways. This chart is kind of helpful. The egg is kind of helpful where you've got a shell, you've got the white part, and you've got the yolk. They're all separate, but they're all part of the egg. You've got the, the apple with the skin and the, the stem and the seeds. It's all different, but it's all an apple. Same thing with the shamrock. You've got the, the petals that are all separate, but they're all part of the same thing. Those are limited illustrations, but they're helpful. You've got this illustration where, where you've got a, a solid and a liquid and a gas. That's kind of helpful. You know, it's the same substance in three different forms. We're, we're talking about something that's, that's kind of helpful. But none of these really, if you explore them long enough, they'll all break down. And, and they won't really fully explain 
the concept of the Trinity. And I think more important than that, more important to fully understanding the, the concept of the Trinity, because I don't know that we can. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. I'm okay with not fully grasping it, aren't you? I, I just believe it. But here's, here's another truth that we've got to get from this, that Jesus, as the Word, the Logos, answers the questions once and for all, what is God like and how does He feel about me? That's done. If you're here tonight, I don't know if you are, but if you're here tonight and you don't know much about God and you're trying to figure God out, look no further than the Word. Look no further than the Logos. He answers once and for all the questions, what is God like? He's like Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Well, how does he feel about me? Well, if I could be so bold to say he loves you so much. He loves you so much. That he could be with God, pre-exist before anything was created, sustain the universe, and still decide, you know what, I'm going to go down there and become one of them. And I'm going to live a perfect life so that I can... I really, I really want to show them how much I love them. If you're wondering how God feels about you, He loves you so much that He died for you. That's how He feels about you. Why did the Word become flesh? To become your high priest. To sympathize with you. To be tempted in all points as you have been and yet never sinned. To show the fullness of his love for you. In some ways, our fascination about the mysteries of God is it's going to go unsatisfied, unanswered in this life. But the Logos, the Word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has revealed the heart of God in the only ways that matter. The great Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard once told a parable about a prince. A prince who wanted to find a maiden suitable to become his queen. And one day while he was running an errand in, in the local village for his father, he passed through the poor part of town. He glanced out the windows of the carriage and his eyes fell upon a beautiful peasant maiden. Poor woman. And during the days that followed, he often would pass by this young lady. He would make a special effort to pass by and soon fell in love with her. But he had a problem. How would he seek her hand? Suppose he could order her to marry him, but even a prince wants his bride to marry him freely and voluntarily, and not through coercion. He could put on his most splendid uniform and drive up to her front door in a carriage drawn by six horses, but if he did this, he could never really be sure why she loved him. Maybe she was just overwhelmed with all of his splendor. So the prince came up with another solution. He would give up his kingly robe, 
and move into the village. Not with a crown, but in the garb of a peasant. To live among the people, to share their interests and concerns, to talk their language in the hopes, mind you, not the guarantee, in the hopes that this young lady would love him the way that he loves her. It's a marvelous thought that the eternal, divine, all-powerful God who transcends every part of this realm of experience that you and I live in would make himself known to us in this way, in this personal and vulnerable way that he could be the source of all life Become flesh, live a perfect life, and then willingly allow his creation to take that life so that we could have eternal life. All of that, if I've done anything resembling a good job at presenting this, all of that is summed up in one excellent name, the Word. We serve a great God, we serve a God, with so, so many different facets, we can't possibly think we'll ever fully understand them all, can we? I'm sure that every person who's come and spoken this summer has, has opened up your eyes to some facet of, of our Lord that you maybe had not thought about. This certainly has done that for me. God loves you so much. Nobody loves you the way he does. Whoever loves you the most in your life, it's, it's not even close. God loves you so much. If you understand that love, or even just a little bit better tonight, I hope that it inspires you to love him better. And if you have a, a question about that, I, you know, I, don't, I need to know more about this God. Well, you're in the right place. I don't know that I've ever known a, a, a group of people that, that love the Lord as, as, real, as really, as genuinely as this group of people here. If you're looking for a place where you can learn more about God, you found it. And if, if, if tonight you just need to ask questions, or if, if tonight you need to start a Bible study, I, I know of at least a dozen people who would do that before they leave the building. Or maybe you're here tonight, and, and, and you're at the point in your journey where you, you know enough about God to understand that He loved you and that you love Him. I want, to, I want to be part of, of that. I want to be a Christian. The good news is you can be tonight. If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the Logos, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, His arms are wide open. Come to me, all ye who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, I, I will give you rest. Repent of your sins. Confess His name. Be buried with Him in baptism and rise to walk in newness of life. That same God who became flesh and dwelt among us will be your God and will welcome you into heaven someday as part of his family. If you want to respond to that kind of God, that love, that invitation, not mine, not even this church's, but God's, would you let us know how we can help you?